Hello, welcome to Fast Pass the Past, the theme park history podcast. I am so excited to welcome you to season two, episode 11. Have you ever wondered what are the origin stories behind your favorite attractions and theme parks? Well, you're in the right place. Today, I'm going to welcome you to the jungle. That's right. Today, we are talking about the history and development of my personal favorite attraction, Jungle Cruise. I'm, of course, your host, Austin Carroll. I'm a history nerd, a former Disneyland cast member, and a current annual pass holder at the Disneyland Resort. Before we get started, I just want to thank everyone for listening. The support that I've gotten for this podcast over the past year has just been unbelievable. I'm really excited to bring you guys a whole new season of Theme Park History. For season two, we have a lot of fun surprises planned, including more iterations of Lost Lands and one or two extremely special guests. I also want to say that we are now a completely clean show suitable for those young listeners and aspiring historians. So without further ado, to launch this season, we are taking you deep into the jungles of Disneyland's original Adventureland to seek out the origins of everyone's favorite funny skippers, ambushes, and piranhas. I'm so glad you can join me for the next five exciting days and six romantic nights. Ever see the Congo when it's gleaming in the night? Ever see the jungle with the animals and the fry? Put me in the Congo and the jungle and I'm right. Got that fever, jungle fever, oh, you know the reason that I long to go. In April of 1998, the Walt Disney Company created an entire theme park filled with animals from around the world. There were lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Children of all ages could come and explore the safaris of Africa, the rainforests of South America, and even witness these spectacular beasts up close for a real guide on a real safari vehicle at Kilimanjaro Safaris. However, the original theme park safari, it was not. That honor is actually bestowed on an attraction that has come to have its own ecosystem, both figuratively and literally. Of course, we are talking about Jungle Cruise, a Disneyland opening day attraction it has spurred countless copycats around the world, including at Florida's Magic Kingdom, Hong Kong, and Tokyo Disneyland. In the 60 years since its inception, the jokes and to an extent the animatronics haven't really gotten any better. Yet it goes down in history as one of the most beloved Disney attractions and, for some reason, is currently being made into a major motion picture with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Despite its recent foray into movie stardom, ironically enough, Jungle Cruise was one of the only opening day Disneyland attractions not based on an existing Disney animated film. This begs the question of how such a quirky and seemingly non-Disney attraction came into existence in the first place. Before we go on, I just want to say that this next part I titled in my script, Live animals, oh my. So, without further ado. <laughs> when Walt Disney and his original team of designers, later known as Imagineers, planned Disneyland, they came up with a group of potential attractions during a so-called blue sky period. Of course, not all these ideas came to fruition. If you remember from our season one podcast, the intended holiday land was scrapped during this period. In addition to the hub locales of Fantasyland and Tomorrowland, 
Walt envisioned another coexisting land. He christened this land, inspired by the jungles and markets of Africa and Asia, as Adventureland, explaining that the spirit of adventure is often linked with exotic tropical places. Many of us dream of traveling to those mysterious, far-off regions of the world. He hoped that the instant future guests reached the sign for what he called the Adventureland portal, they would feel transported. A big part of this land was to be the attraction that eventually became the Jungle Cruise we all know today, although it ended up being very different from what was originally intended. To say Walt had slightly ambitious expectations for his Jungle Cruise attraction would be a severe understatement. He was inspired by a popular series of documentary shorts and films called Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. In particular, he was fascinated by the film The African Lion, which the Walt Disney Company had filmed in Kenya in 1952. Similar to a National Geographic or Animal Planet show today, it focused on the brutality of the African safari, one of the most compelling scenes being a lioness hunting her wild beast prey. Although that wasn't really the scene that captured Walt. Walt loved the film's examination of the many different species of creatures uneasily sharing the same savanna. He also admired the sweeping backdrops of Africa and wanted to recreate those magical jungles in Adventureland. However, as difficult as it may be to comprehend over 60 years later, these Southern California construction workers had never concealed ride equipment in a man-made jungle or built a switchback for boat storage that appeared to be a native's village in Africa. Not to mention, both of which had to pass the California Building Inspection Code. This was a new challenge for Walt's brave construction workers, a new type of storytelling that, with the noted exception of Knott's Berry Farm, had barely been attempted in the United States in 1954. In addition to the no-doubt serious on-the-job learning for the construction members involved, the early Disneyland construction workers had to deal with a seriously underestimated construction budget. Instead of the $4 million estimated, it cost Walt almost $17 million to build the opening day park. According to Lore, a frustrated Walt, already famous for his films and TV shows at the time, would complain on visits to the construction site that, by the time you get through burying all our money underground, we won't have a thing left for the show. Over at the Jungle Cruise construction site, it was no different. Walt actually even took issue with the world-famous Schweitzer Falls, named after the famous explorer Dr. Albert Falls. Although a showstopper and home to the eighth wonder of the world, the backside of water, Walt was less than impressed when he learned how much concrete and steel bars were utilized in its construction. After all, he thought, no one would even walk there. If not for Joseph Fowler, a Naval Academy and MIT design graduate, it is likely Walt's penny-pinching may have derailed the entire project, not just Adventureland and the Jungle Cruise, but the entire theme park. Joseph was an unintimidated World War II war hero and the head of Disneyland construction. In a lot of circles, he's kind of known as the can-do man, which was his reflexive catchphrase whenever Walt had a... Another one of his ideas. However, none of the park hubs proved more difficult than Adventureland. Someone's rocking my dream home. Someone's invading my dream. The land would feature only one attraction on opening day, but that can-do attitude didn't quite go that far because what Walt wanted was live animals. Yes, live animals in the Jungle Cruise. 
Walt's original idea for the Jungle Cruise included live animals as part of the so-called show. That is what he loved about the African lion, after all. All of the animals shared the same living quarters. Walt thought that a cruise through wild and exotic lands featuring animals in their natural habitat would be the ideal way to present them. People could see these animals at the nearby LA Zoo, but having them featured on his boat ride would allow guests to get up close and personal. However, it was not meant to be, and not even Mr. Can Do could make it happen. After many consultations with animal care specialists, Walt was convinced that although the domesticated mules and horses in Frontierland could generally be expected to perform their roles, live exotic animals would never provide the consistent show he wanted. They couldn't be trusted to stay in areas in which they'd remain visible, they'd sleep most of the day, and they'd surely be irritated by the constant boatload of gawkers and the special effects required to tell the story. Anyone who has visited Kilimanjaro Safaris at Walt Disney World's Animal Kingdom knows that even today, with 60-plus years of theme park construction knowledge, Disney coach animals still eat, sleep, and perform on their own time. Someone's invading my dream. You'll notice that the entire landscape has clusters of animals in order to try to guarantee that the person riding through the attraction will see at least a couple animals. However, although they may have figured out in 1998, such challenges were thought to be insurmountable in 1954. Park designers couldn't even guarantee that the animals would remain in their designated living quarters at a given time. Imagine the hysteria the occasional escaped animal would have created. A lion loose on Main Street, which was located just a 20 feet jump away. It kept those early Imagineers up at night, I imagine. However, enter our good friend, which comes up a lot in this podcast, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Walt noted that the giant squid his special effects team had created for the 1954 Walt Disney picture was extremely lifelike. As almost all of his ideas for early Disneyland were expansions on ideas that Imagineers had tried in the Burbank Sound Studios first, Walt imagines that creatures such as crocodiles, elephants, and monkeys should prove easy for his team to bring to life. After all, they did it with a giant squid. you think that this would solve the Imagineers' woes, but instead they were now faced with countless other problems of creating animatronics. The idea being that if the animals just stood there, it would kind of negate the whole Jungle Cruise experience that Walt desired. However, making these animals move, there was another major problem with that, as they were both expensive and still at their earliest developmental stages. They also required electricity in an attraction where the land was mostly water and also open to the occasional Southern California rainstorm. By this point, Harper Goff, the project lead, had modified the plan for the Jungle Cruise to mimic one of the most popular movies of the day, 1951's The African Queen, starring Humber Bogart and Katherine Hepburn. The American Film Institute consistently names this film as one of the top 100 of all time, but it was only two and a half years old when developers broke ground on Disneyland in July 16, 1954. From the thrilling pages of world-renowned author C.S. Forrester's story, and filmed in the jungles and at the headwaters of Africa, the Dark Continent... The movie's story focused on people sharing a riverboat adventure. Jungle Cruise would mirror it slightly in that it would provide a riverboat cruise experience to the public with the caption of the ship 
performing the roles of protector and narrator during the ride. They would pretend as if every second of the trip involved peril and potentially mortal danger. Hence, the original Swanee River idea for the Jungle Cruise was scrapped and Africa was in. Ironically, this classic film also inspired an answer to the wiring quandary the Jungle Cruise team was facing. Walt knew that his buddy, director John Hudson, staged the African Queen in a way the titular tramp steamer was never totally clear of the water or the underbrush. So this visual trickery became the blueprint for Jungle Cruise. If they cleverly placed the animals in just the right spots, they found that they could supply power to the animatronics without any guests ever seeing the wiring. In this manner, they could protect the illusion of the riverboat adventure while making all the animals seem lifelike. Jungle Cruise would cement the idea that a person entering Adventureland was truly entering a new place. An exotic land full of mystery and excitement and, eventually, really bad puns, but we'll get to that. didn't need to be real to convey the feeling of the jungle, the plant certainly did. If only for the very famous joke in the present-day attraction, since we are in an area filled with rare tropical foliage, I like to point out some of my favorite plants to you. There's one, and there's one, and there's one. (laughs) That's my favorite joke, if you can't tell. There were precarious problems in bringing a jungle to Southern California, is not a tropical environment. The primary one involved the short construction timeline. As you may remember from some of our previous podcasts, Disneyland broke ground in July of 1954 and it opened in July of the following year. That's only 361 days of construction, much too short for an actual jungle to take root in Southern California. Enter horticulturalist Bill Evans. During the Great Depression, Bill dropped out of Stanford to learn the family gardening trade. Drawing upon his world travels as an elite merchant marine staff during World War II, he convinced his family to offer exotic plants as picturesque backdrops for the nurseries of the richest people in Los Angeles, including Walt Disney. Having impressed Walt, Bill Evans, gardener to the stars, suddenly found himself responsible for one of the largest orange groves on the West Coast. Only, they were supposed to look like the exotic places in Asia and Africa. But Bill tried his darnest to make it happen. He was actually the one responsible for moving Adventureland from its original side near Tomorrowland to the west side of the park to incorporate the large eucalyptus trees already on the property. A holdover from the original orange groves, these were planted to function as a windbreak for those orange trees. And as such, they made the perfect visual barrier, hiding a great deal of the mysteries that lay within the Jungle Cruise. Also saved during this construction was the Dominguez Palm, which is now located just outside the entrance to the Jungle Cruise. It's obviously, it's a large palm tree, and it dates back to 1986, and is named after the family who lived there before the land became a theme park. The rancher who sold the land to Disney requested that this particular tree be saved. However, even with this existing vegetation, Bill had just 12 months to fundamentally alter an entire landscape. And while he performed his job marvelously, he still largely failed. 
When opening day arrived at Disneyland, despite the cover from the eucalyptus trees, the jungle forests were noticeably thin. Due to the lack of tall trees, Jungle Crew riders in 1955 could see beyond the anticipated forest perspective range. This created multiple issues, including one amusing story where future Disney legend Marty Schuyler illegally parked his car near the watery cliffs of the attraction and guests could, could see his car through the trees. <laughs> As talented as Bill was, he wasn't a miracle worker. Trees don't grow tall overnight. Not even Walt Disney's magic could make that so. However, he did come up with some trickery of his own. Walt Disney came up with the idea of adding artificial wood, the equivalent of tree stilts. While people presumed that he was joking, the idea had merit. In fact, the addition of enchantments to living trees proved easier than anticipated. They were able to add artificial size whenever needed in this capacity. Bill also had some interesting ideas of his own. He was able to use those plentiful orange trees in Adventureland as additional foliage. He simply turned them upside down to resemble mangroves and jungle roots. He also searched the boomtown of Los Angeles for discarded palm trees that were in the bulldozer's way. Instead of seeking to recreate the dense forest he saw during his marine days, Bill decided park visitors would prefer a Hollywood jungle instead. To create his Hollywood jungle here in Anaheim, Bill was known to smuggle foreign exotic plant seeds inside the cuffs of his socks. And wouldn't you know it, now 60-odd years later, scientists have declared the jungle flora and fauna of the Jungle Cruise to make up their own unique and self-sustaining ecosystem, including plants that are found nowhere else in Southern California. Throughout the years, the tall trees engulfing the Jungle Cruise have created a lush canopy that regulates the temperature inside this Hollywood jungle, allowing plants that you won't find anywhere else in Southern California to thrive right here in the Disneyland Park. According to Karen Hedges, director, yes, Hedges, oh my gosh, director of Disneyland Resorts Horticulture and Landscaping, it now has a large tree canopy made up of coral trees, fiscus trees, some of the large palm trees, and bamboo overhead that is high as 100 feet in some areas, providing the idyllic setting for Adventureland and especially Jungle Cruise that we know and love today. In conclusion, that bamboo in the Jungle Cruise can grow up to be six stories tall. People say it can grow up to seven stories, but that's a whole nother story. Now a quick word from our sponsors. We are incredibly excited to announce Fast Pass of the Past has a new Tee Public online store filled to the brim with theme park history-inspired designs. Have you ever wanted to let people know you were a theme park expert without having to say a word? Now you can with our Fast Pass of the Past-inspired t-shirts, phone cases, mugs, and totes. You can choose from over 19 different designs, including shirts that lament the loss of the great movie ride, Paradise Pier, the Jaws attraction, and that deadly people mover. These are perfect to take on your next theme park vacation, and merchandise starts at just $2.50. Visit our Tee Public store by typing in bit.ly B-I-T dot L-Y slash store on your web browser. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash store. You can also visit our Tee Public store via the link in the show notes or on our website at www.themeparkhistorypodcast.com. While designers have long planned for Jungle Cruise to operate as an actual boat cruise, another issue arose for our poor original Imagineers. 
for starters, the timing of the cruise had to remain consistent. Any captain can tell you that no matter how calm the waters are on a given day, scheduling arrival and departure times is dicey at best. While Southern California didn't have the rainy concern that would later plague designers of Walt Disney World, it was still known to be susceptible to the elements on occasion. In other words, actual untethered boat rides downstream could cause some serious traffic issues. In order to prevent things like capsized boats, crashes, and to sequence the boats properly, Disney Imagineers decided to put each Jungle Cruise boat on rails. Because of this choice, boat captains would never control the path of their travels. They could, however, influence the speed during the journey. Unfortunately, this meant those early ride operators needed to time their movements perfectly. Anyone else getting Jaws attraction flashbacks here? Once, while riding the Jungle Cruise attraction, Walt was horrified to discover that his entire trip was going way too quickly. His intended 10-minute jungle experience only lasted 4 minutes. The guilty captain and the entire Jungle Cruise staff received retraining on how they should time their ride movements. Definitely wouldn't want to be them. Now, we reach the brown water conundrum. Because of the tracks, there was one other necessary stipulation. The waters beneath the boats required coloring. This coloring served two purposes. It provides a more realistic portrayal of swampy waters, of course, but it also conceals the fact that the cruise ships are in a pool with tracks that in some areas are only about four feet deep. If you've ever heard someone complain that the Jungle Cruise or even the Rivers of America water is so nasty, you can explain to them that the murky depths are intentional. That murky water passengers sail through is dyed brown, dark green, and muddy blue. Before the Jungle Cruise filled with brackish water, Walt actually drove a car through the dry riverbeds to promote the ride on television. The car was a Nash Rambler, which was one of the show's sponsors, and his tour featured the controversial Schweitzer Falls and the crude mechanics of the animals. Later, when Jungle Cruise opened to the public in 1955, only two boats were running, Gang's Gal and Congo Queen. Now for the biggest joke of all. When the original Jungle Cruise opened, there were no jokes. None. It was a serious ride with a serious story and fake animals. After all, it was based on the Oscar award-winning True Life Adventures documentaries. The skipper's narration highlighted the perils of the trip, pointing out danger at literally every turn. Shortly after opening, Walt overheard a conversation between mother and son. The little boy indicated that he wanted to ride on the Jungle Cruise. His mother dismissed the idea out of hand, stating that they've ridden it before. There was no point in going on it again. Walt Disney was very angry to hear this, and he learned that park patrons were fickle. If something wasn't new and exciting, they would quickly lose interest in it. According to legend, this is when he came up with his mythic philosophy, Disneyland will never be completed, it will continue to grow as long as there is imagination left in the world. However, this philosophy must not have really impacted him, because it wasn't until 1961 that his desire for change fell onto the Jungle Cruise. Having outlasted the Tomorrowland boats and the precursor for the Storyland canal boats, which you'll remember from our Sunken Boats episode, Jungle Cruise still had become something of a problem child for the park. Guests certainly loved it, as demonstrated by its continued drawing power. 
However, the waterlogged animatronics broke down so much that Walt once joked to a reporter that he knew they worked only because he had seen it on television. Rather than allowing a struggling ride to operate indefinitely, Uncle Walt tasked one of his favorite Imagineers with improving the ride experience, and of course that man was Mark Davis. Tasked with improving the ride, he decided to instead fundamentally alter Jungle Cruise as a concept and turn it into a hilarious jaunt through the rivers of Africa and Asia. Among other things, he was responsible for the four men cowering on a totem pole above a giant horned rhinoceros that you see in the ride today, along with the now legendary, they'll get the point, in the end joke. Davis meticulously researched the amount of time guests would spend at each sight gag. Then, he drew a scene that he believed they could enjoy in the given time frame. His concept sketches for Jungle Cruise were often translated exactly as they appeared on paper and many of the original sketches Davis created still exist in some form today, including the pygmy canoes and the infamous sleeping zebra. To accentuate the change in tone towards satirical humor, the verbiage in the narration also changed dramatically from formal documentary to playful satire. This seemingly innocent modification proved wildly divisive at the time. A vocal group of naysayers complained that the switch from serious boat adventure a la the African Queen to a silly romp was a travesty. Fifty years later, those complaints seem crazy as many have forgotten the ride was ever serious to begin with. However, this was arguably the first time that Walt Disney overhauled one of their most famous attractions. Nowadays, the outrage goes both ways. People loudly complain if a ride grows outdated in tone or if a beloved attraction like Disneyland's Tower of Terror is modified. That's because Walt Disney refused to rest on his laurels with Disneyland, even when it was only five years old. His dedication to keeping everything fresh redefined all of our expectations for what we should expect from theme parks. The legacy of Jungle Cruise is unmistakable. The unlikely combination of comedically extreme jungle scenes and pun-intensive onboard narration have entertained millions of theme park guests for the past 60 years. Walt Disney himself created the ride and demanded its overhaul. Due to the popularity at Disneyland, Jungle Cruise was an automatic inclusion for Walt Disney World's debut, and it's featured in Tokyo Disneyland and Hong Kong resorts as well. Since its debut, the Jungle Cruise has continued to evolve and delight and surprise even Disney veterans with the addition of new scenes. The elephant bathing pool was added in 1962, the safari camp in 1964, and in 1976 there were seven entirely new scenes added. Nowadays, a holiday overlay called Jingle Cruise also set sail in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. The Magic Kingdom version is also home to another famous Disney sinking boat. Perhaps its name sealed its destiny because the San Cruz Sadie did in fact sink. In 2004, the boat took on more water than it could hold and went under. Although given how shallow most of the water is, it probably didn't go far. The boat was refurbished and actually put back into rotation. As we mentioned earlier in this podcast, the original version for Jungle Cruise inspired Animal Kingdom's 1998 Kilimanjaro Safari. The attraction was and is about as close to a real African safari as you can get, and it is the biggest Disney has ever created. Guests board a safari vehicle in the fictional village of Hambray at Animal Kingdom's Parks Africa. They then travel through a really realistic-looking reserve where live African wildlife roam freely. And it is experienced like no other, and way better than the zoo. 
But if you know about the original plan for Jungle Cruise, you know that this was not a new idea. The Kilimanjaro Safaris of today was Walt's vision for his original Adventureland attraction, just slightly altered for Animal Kingdom and minus the water and steamboat. Kilimanjaro Safaris is evidence that Walt truly was ahead of his time and that his ideas still have the power to create magic for today's guests. I generally hope you enjoyed this look into the origins of iconic Disney attraction that promises danger, adventure, and a whole lot of laughs. Jungle Cruise is one of my favorite attractions, and I am so lucky to have ridden on three iterations at Disneyland, Walt Disney World, and Tokyo Disneyland, where I understood nothing. Interestingly enough, in the international versions, they changed the gags quite a bit to appeal to local humor. Thank you so much for your continued support of Fast Pass the Past, the Theme Park History Podcast. Make sure you check out our brand new store on TeePublic for all of your Theme Park History expert merch. You can find the link at themeparkhistorypodcast.com. Also, I invite you to email me at fastpastthepast at gmail.com. That's fastpastthepast at gmail.com. If you have show ideas, disagree with anything I said, or just want to say hi, I love that. You can also message me on our Facebook page if that is easier. You can find the show notes, which includes all of the links, including a link to our store and all of our sources that we use on the show at www.themeparkhistorypodcast.com. If you enjoy the show or you just want to help us out, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. It seems silly, but it really helps our show. Now, without further ado, we laughed, we cried, we almost died. I love you all like family. Now get out. I'm sorry. That was rude. Please get out.